local news, culture, and NPR. From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, the American Lung Association has released its State of Tobacco Control Report this morning, and New York is earning a failing grade for tobacco prevention and control programs funding. We'll talk to the American Lung Association about why the state is doing so poorly controlling smoking. Pennsylvania lawmakers have until the end of this year to reauthorize a key area of state law that protects low-income utility customers from sudden shutoffs when they're behind on their bills. And that spurred a debate between consumer advocates and utilities about additional protections. We'll get the report from Spotlight PA, the independent newsroom covering Pennsylvania state politics. Plus, our Women in Business continues. Our series continues with Bonnie Law Tourette, Wayne County's own, and she was selected as Pennsylvania Farm Bureau's 2023 Outstanding Woman in Ag. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump is celebrating his decisive victory in the New Hampshire Republican primary election. He came in about 10 percentage points ahead of second-place finisher, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. NPR's Tamara Keith says Haley insists she won't quit the race. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who campaigned with her... He's worried that Trump is going to lose in November and drag down other Republicans on the ballot, too. But, you know, that's just not the view of the majority of the Republican electorate in this country. Even in this state, New Hampshire, where independent voters could weigh in on the Republican primary, Trump was over 50 percent. He won. And at some point, if you want to be the nominee, you have to win a race. You can't just keep coming in second. NPR's Tamara Keith reporting. The Associated Press also called the New Hampshire Democratic primary for President Biden, even though he was not on the ballot. Supporters had to write in his name. The Democratic National Committee has set South Carolina as its first official primary. The White House is urging House Speaker Mike Johnson to resist pressure from Republican hardliners who want to reject a bipartisan border security bill. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers in the Senate are closer to a deal after weeks of negotiation. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre is calling on Speaker Johnson to have a true good-faith conversation about how to address security at the southern border. Be part of the negotiations. Actually do something that's going to make a change for the better. And right now, that's not what we're seeing. He's getting in the way. And, you know, that's not what this president is about. He wants to see this done in a bipartisan way. Johnson is under intense pressure from former President Donald Trump and the hard right to reject the Senate bill and demand more concessions from Democrats and the White House. Immigration and border security are expected to be key issues in the upcoming election. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Stocks opened higher this morning as China's central bank announced fresh efforts to prop up the world's second largest economy. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped about 50 points in early trading. The People's Bank of China says it's cutting the amount of cash reserves banks are required to hold. The surprise move is designed to encourage more bank lending in China amid disappointing economic growth. Stocks closed up overnight in Shanghai and Hong Kong. Netflix stock opened up after the streaming service announced another big jump in its subscriber base. Netflix has been offering cheaper ad-supported plans and cracking down on password sharing. Last year, the company added nearly 30 million new subscribers worldwide. Unions are having less success signing up new members. Despite winning some big pay gains, the ranks of union members rose only slightly in 2023, and the share of all workers who belong to a union dipped to just 10 percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is now up about 40 points. The Nasdaq is up nearly 90. This is NPR. Heavy fighting is reported in southern Gaza, especially the southern city of Khan Yunus. The relief group, Doctors Without Borders, says Israeli forces have ordered people to leave the block where one of the remaining hospitals is located. The organization says injured civilians will not be able to access urgent care. 28% of Americans are now religiously unaffiliated. NPR's Jason DeRose reports that's according to a new study by Pew Research. They're called the nuns. 
That's N-O-N-E-S. The group is made up of atheists, agnostics, and those who describe their religion as nothing in particular. The number of nuns has grown dramatically since Pew first began looking into the group. Back in 2007, nuns made up just 16% of Americans. Now, the number has risen to 28%. That means atheists, agnostics, and those whose religion is nothing in particular make up a greater percentage of Americans than Catholics or evangelical Protestants. Among other findings, nuns tend to be more politically liberal, but they're also less civically engaged, less likely to vote or volunteer in their communities. Pew's findings are based on a survey of more than 3,300 U.S. adults. Jason DeRose, NPR News. The National Weather Service has posted flash flood warnings in parts of Texas near Houston this morning. Similar warnings are up in central Louisiana and western Mississippi. Forecasters say several inches of rain have fallen overnight and more rain is coming. There are also heavy fog watches up across the country from Texas to southern Michigan. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News, from Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is NPR. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The American Lung Association's 2024 State of Tobacco Control Report, released today, reveals that New York earned a failing grade for tobacco prevention and control program funding and a D grade for failing to pass statewide legislation to end the sale of all flavored tobacco products in the state. The 22nd Annual Report evaluates state and federal policies on actions taken to eliminate tobacco use and recommends proven effective tobacco control laws and policies to save lives. Joining us now with more is Trevor Summerfield, Director of Advocacy for the American Lung Association in New York. Good morning, Trevor. Tim, good morning, and thank you so much for having me uh, this morning. And to your listeners out there, um, as a reminder, tobacco use is the leading cause of death in New York and across the country uh, and takes the lives of more than 28,000 New Yorkers every single year. Yeah, so... Uh, Yeah, I wanted to ask, like, so if that is the case here in New York, why is New York performing so poorly? Well, great question. Um, But um, when it comes to uh, both the funding of the state tobacco program um, and ending the sale of flavored tobacco products, um, the state on the latter part last year had uh, an opportunity with the governor's proposal to eliminate the sale of uh, menthol-flavored and flavored um, tobacco products from the shelves. Because we know, you know, over time, you know, one, they addict kids, right, to a a lifelong of addiction to tobacco, which we do not want. Um, And also, hopefully, um, would entice adult smokers uh, to quit as well. So that was a missed opportunity. And when it comes to the funding of the state tobacco program, um, unfortunately, New York is not in a uh, unfamiliar place as other states. Um, most states do not meet the threshold of what the CDC recommends that funding uh, of tobacco you know, control programs can do. And again, that leads to education, awareness uh, in the community, other programs they can run, um, including, uh, including providing cessation services as well for people that uh, do want to quit. So let's talk about the the, the 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 report in 2023. According to your report, it was actually a productive year for tobacco control in New York with uh, an increase in attacks on cigarettes and some other funding. But that funding's not getting put where it needs to go. Can you talk about that and explain why? Well, I think the funding is is going where it, I mean, or at the, the level it should be. Yes. Okay. Yeah. At the level it should be. I was going to say it was like for those the state allocated dollars, they are going where they are intended. Uh, we would like more of them um, for sure. Um, but yeah, no. Right now, the state only funds the uh, tobacco control program at uh, less than one quarter of the CDC recommended level. Um, and again, that's why the American Lung Association releases this report every year because um, we, we know the impact those programs can have um, and the lives they can save uh, and the people that they can reach. So even with this uh, 535 per pack tax on cigarettes, which is uh, leading the nation in terms of uh, the amount of tax and a $7.5 million increase in tobacco control 
funding included as part of the state budget, there's still not as much of that funding going into these tobacco control programs, including programs aimed at, as you mentioned earlier, the availability of flavored e-cigarettes, menthol cigarettes, which uh, are uh, the major cause of tobacco related death and disease in black communities. Uh, so how how can the state sort of you know increase the flow of that funding into these control programs? Or what are you guys trying to, to push for? Well, I think, I mean, for, for starters, one last year, and again, we will continue to work on this. Uh, and I should point out that it wasn't just the state, but Westchester County failed to pass a flavor ban um, that was agreed to um, and then ultimately vetoed by the county executive at the time um, just over a year ago. Um, so ending the sale of flavored tobacco products in the state um, is obviously something we will continue to push for um, and really believe needs to be done. Um, and then again, if funding and resources. So that means staff, that means people on the ground. Um, we work with grantees across the state that are doing phenomenal work. So um, even increasing, which was a huge success and a win, um, to have the nation leading um, tax on a pack of cigarettes was a huge win. Um, and increasing funding for the tobacco program um, was a huge win, but it was only for one time. So how can we sustain that? And I think that's the continuing message that we're trying to send um, and, you know, continue to convey through the state of tobacco report um, that we release every year and how we can continue to be better um, in addressing tobacco related issues in New York um, and save the lives. Let's talk about uh, a little bit more about some of these New York grades. We talked about some of the the bad grades. It's not all bad. There are a couple of uh, positive signs here. You know that we talked about the funding for state tobacco prevention programs as an F. But how did the state do in uh, workplace laws and some other areas? New York, I mean, has a pretty good track record, right? Um, as do most of the neighboring states as well: Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont. Um, but when it comes to the strength of smoke-free workplace laws, New York has been a champion on this for a very long time and gets an A grade. Um, again, we talked about tobacco taxes um, and gets a B grade now um, because it's the highest in the nation. Um, but due to the parameters of the uh, report, we believe it still could be higher. Um, and then again, when it comes to coverage and access to services to quit tobacco, uh, the New York State quit line, um, is phenomenal, um, and the Bureau of Tobacco Control does a great job of uh, providing people access to services um, if they do want to quit. And then uh, you also look at federal uh, actions. I mean, you mentioned the state of uh, this whole report is not just based uh, in New York. Uh, we're speaking about New York, but the American Lung Association report covers uh, the country. How did uh, it rate in terms of like a national perspective in some of these areas? Um, I know that the report... Uh, points out President Biden's failure to finalize rules to end the sale of menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. Yes, um, and the Lung Association is eagerly awaiting the president to take action on that rule. Um, that would um, obviously help us um, in a lot of areas, uh, not just across the country, um, but in states trying to address these um, policies as well right now. So, you know, overall, uh, the American Lung Association you know, at the federal level, has been urging President Biden to take action on that rule um, and urges them to move forward um, as soon as possible. Uh, when it comes to other grades as well, um, I mean, when you look at the federal tobacco taxes, it's a grade F. Uh, they're not very high. Um, they can do more there. Um, and also, you know, when it comes to coverage of quitting smoking and its treatments, um, that's a great D on that. They could do a lot better there as well. Um, so we're just calling on the federal government as well to kind of follow the um, footprints, if you will, of states like New York, who, again, have to do better, um, but have done better, I think, uh, than the federal government in a lot of these areas. And also uh, the report, again, calling out the FDA's overdue review of uh, applications for e-cigarette products, including those flavors that are pop popular among youth that we mentioned. Um why is it taking so long for the FDA to, to get these regulations? Uh, you would have to ask the FDA that question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is why you give them an incomplete uh, in their score. Yes, that's, a, that's why we give them an incomplete, yes. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, th there are many reasons b behind the scenes, I'm sure, and I don't know, I'm not privy to them, or, or not all of them, um, that hold these things up. 
Um, all we're saying is that it needs to happen um, yesterday. Uh, and also, uh, you guys are, of course, you know, the, the budgeting process is starting in Albany, back to New York. Uh, and what what is it yeah. that the American Lung Association is going to push for this year in terms of tobacco control laws and, and these policies to save lives? Oh, great question. I mean, again, three big ticket items. Again, um, we want to preserve funding for the New York State Tobacco Control Program um, and make sure, again, ahead of New York State and some of the, um, if you read the tea leaves or some of the headlines, the upcoming budget deficit um, that Albany will be facing. Um, So making sure that we preserve funding for that program uh, is obviously first and foremost. Um, We do want to still push and prohibit the style of flavored tobacco products. Um, we know, again, um, when you're talking about hooking kids to uh, an addictive substance that could be a lifetime of addiction um, and money and negative health consequences and all of that, um, we want those <clears throat> products off the shelves. Um, and then finally, to try to work with the state to, and again, this is another issue they did not address last year and they had the opportunity to, um, in legislation, um, both through the budget um, and the actual legislative process, um, but eliminating loopholes on the sale of e-cigarettes, too, in New York, which we've seen is very problematic because while we've seen some, you know, traditional tobacco smoking rates fall, we've seen an increased use of vaping products. So I, I, I'm not sure um, that's the answer we're looking for. Um, so we will continue working with the state to address those issues, and those are our priorities uh, upcoming in 2024. And folks can get more information about uh, this report and the work of the American Lung Association, including the Lung Helpline at lung.org. Also information about the upcoming uh, premier stair climbing event in New York, Fight for Air Climb. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about that? This is coming up in March, and folks are climbing the 55 floors of Pen 1, the building in Manhattan, Midtown. I love it. Uh, so these, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate um, and uh, work on policy generally, but I've worked in nonprofits my entire life and events like Fight for Air Climb, um, I cannot tell you um, how much joy that brings to me um, as a person because the people are out there uh, fighting and standing up for something. Um, obviously, support, you know, the American Lung Association um, and, and really appreciate that. Um, but, yeah, that, that event is coming up, and you can find all of that information on lung.org. Um, check it out, and please, like, would lo- anybody that would join that event um, w- would love to have you and uh, can tell you that they are just absolutely phenomenal, um, and when you leave, uh, you feel full. Let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after 55 floors, I'd imagine. Um, but it's open to, it says here, um, designed for every type of climber from beginners to competitive climbers. I didn't know that there were competitive climbers. So if you, if you go, you might get to well, meet, you should, uh, meet if, some of those uh, folks. I, I don't know if they actually go by competitive climber, but uh, <laughs> if you ever take the stairs next to a firefighter, good luck. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. We've been speaking with uh, Trevor Summerfield, Director of Advocacy for the American Lung Association in New York, about the American Lung Association's 2024 State of Tobacco Control report released just this morning. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us. And it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, a report from Spotlight PA, the newsroom that's covering journalism with in-depth journalism, covering the Pennsylvania state government and urgent statewide issues. This one, they're talking about a law that shields people from winter utility shutoffs. They need to authorize a new bill before the end of the year. And there's a lot of debate going on in the Keystone State. We'll learn more right after this. This is Radio Chatsko. CDC recommends everyone six months and older get an updated COVID-19 vaccine to protect against the potentially serious outcomes of COVID-19 illness this winter. To find COVID-19 vaccine locations near you, text your zip code to 438-829, call 1-800-232-0233, or go to wjffradio.org, where you'll find a vaccine locator and COVID tracker. Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. 
Poverty is linked to the blood and can be exterminated. On the next Radio Lab, one of the most dangerous ideas of the 20th century. Sterilization for the best interest of society. People with disabilities. I'm gonna do a motion for sterilization. People with mental illness. These are powers of the state which we should be incredibly suspicious of. Join us for the final episode of our four-part series on the concept of intelligence on the next Radio Lab. This afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The Pennsylvania legislature must reauthorize a law that shields people from winter utility shutoffs before the end of the year. That spurred a debate between consumer advocates and utilities about additional protections. Stephen Caruso is a reporter for Spotlight PA who covered this story. Radio Catskill is partnered with Spotlight PA, the independent, nonpartisan, and nonprofit newsroom dedicated to high-quality investigative and public service journalism about the Pennsylvania state government and urgent statewide issues. Jason Dole spoke to Stephen Caruso last night on the local edition. So this is um, a Pennsylvania state law, as you said, passed in 2004. And the goal of it at the time was basically to give utilities more ability to claw back um, money from people who owed them for electric services, for, for gas services. Um, the, the law doesn't entirely apply to water, but it can. But, um, and and the, basically the back and forth was something along these lines, that, that utilities, um, if somebody wasn't paying their bill, they could go to the uh, State Public Utility Commission to sort of try to hash it out. And the commission had a pretty wide jurisdiction to to craft um, these long-running repayment plans. Like uh, some, I think, even made it 100 years. Uh, you know, I can't speak for why that was. That was something that came up in the hearing. And the idea of passing this law was that Utilities would get the ability to, if they cut off service, to basically only restart service once a bill had been fully paid. You know, this could be a bill for anywhere from, you know, 500 to 1,000 to maybe multiple thousands of dollars. Um, but it also did include a few consumer protections. And one of those was, as you mentioned, a moratorium on shutting off people's uh, heat or electricity in winter uh, from, I think they classify that under the bill from November 1st until, I believe, sometime in March. So the general goal here was, you know, the industry gets some stuff they like, they can get some money back, and consumers get some protections. But they also, as is kind of common in legislatures, put this clause on it that, like, this will expire in 10 years, and then it has to be revisited. So it was reauthorized in 2014 when the Pennsylvania General Assembly was controlled by Republicans in both chambers, and there was a Republican governor. But it's now expiring again, and needs to be reauthorized. And now Pennsylvania is in this different position where Democrats control the House, Republicans control the Senate, and we have a Democratic governor. So consumer advocates are pushing uh, and, and Democratic lawmakers in the House that are listening to try to add more consumer protections to the bill. And that's kind of what we're looking at right now. So this law does have to be reauthorized by the end of the year, and it will be an interesting debate. Sounds like you're saying that the primary thrust of this law initially was designed to help utility companies collect unpaid bills, as you said, but there were those consumer protections. So even though people are looking to change it now, what was that in essence, a, a compromise at the time to try to make sure that it was doing some good on both sides of the the, the billing ledger, both the consumer and the provider. Yeah, that's how those who were around for it described and those involved in the passage. It was meant to be that, that you know, back and forth. Actually, there's some other consumer protections in there. There's They did affirm the ability of a, of a consumer to dispute their bill if they want it. There has to be notice before a shutoff. Like, the, the utility can't just come in and immediately, like, one day your lights go out. Um, you know, so there's some other limited protections. Um, a lot of them, I should say, also are income-dependent. Um, it varies protection to protection, but uh, many of them are restricted to people who make under a certain amount of the poverty, uh, the, the federal poverty uh, uh, guidelines that they release every year. So it's mostly uh, for people who make maybe like 250% or less of, of the federal poverty guideline. That varies person to person, family to family, depending on how many kids there are, how many like you know folks are in the household. But um, you know, and, and Democrats' bill it, it would expand a lot of these. It would add all these protections to water. It would also notably um, it would uh, give uh, it would create a moratorium for summer shutoffs for just two months in the height of summer, July and August. Uh, you know that in particular was cited because of super high um, like you know cost of energy costs during uh, these hot, hot summers we're having. So the advocates want to give the PUC some extra ability to, like, you know, part of it was taking away their jurisdiction. 
but the advocates now want to give the PUC a little bit more ability to craft repayment plans because that that whole the the thing that utilities got that you know ability to force people to repay plus fees to get connections restarted for heat or electricity. Um, Advocates are saying that's become a real burden, a real albatross for for low-income consumers who more and more have to put more of their money into paying their energy bills. Okay, so getting the PUC involved, meaning that that would provide some structure to actually uh, help consumers more? The, The Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission? Yeah, as the bill is, as the law is designed right now, basically once the PUC gives a uh, plan, uh, it's kind of one you have to stick with. And and the PUC would have a little bit more rare jurisdiction to maybe create a new plan if somebody fell behind for another reason. Um, it would also like let them. It would I think it would let them kind of add like some longer timelines depending on someone's income. A lot, like I said, a lot of the bill is really dependent on how much money a household is making. But the general idea is low income families who studies have found. Uh, you know, for example, a study cited by a local uh, legal advocate found that like are paying more and more of their you know monthly income into utilities give them more flexibility so that you know they're not forced to choose between feeding themselves and keeping the lights on. What else are consumer advocates looking for? And uh, along those lines, are consumer advocates looking for anything that Democrats aren't proposing in this uh, new bill? Um, they, I think there's definitely some, you know, attempts to go further. Uh, there would be, I think there's been a proposal for uh, banning some of those fees I mentioned, like a reconnection fee, late fees. Uh, but I believe some of that's in the bill. I, I would say utility advocates, they might have further goals, but everyone who spoke on Democrats' bill spoke very highly of it. Uh, that, you know, I think everybody in Harrisburg is usually looking for, you know, more than what be on the table. But, you know, after uh, a reauthorization where nothing, you know, nothing new was really added, particularly for consumers, I think consumer advocates were happy to just have a seat at the table and be able to, you know, ask for more. And I should add, too, what Democrats propose, like the summer moratorium, giving the PUC more discretion, it is opposed by the utility industry. Um, their main argument is that basically the people, like there are people who um, currently use the system and, and don't pay bills that can number into, you know, over $1,000, over $10,000. Uh, it's not many, but, but enough. And that those people who don't pay their bills, that can actually be used to justify rate increases for everyone. So, like, uh, it's one of many costs that can be factored into a electricity company when they go before the state utility commission and ask to say bump everyone's electricity price by, you know, however much. Um, so, you know, their their main point basically then this might seem well-meaning, this might seem helpful. But, you know, people might abuse the process. So there, there is some built-in opposition. And, um, you know, and I should add, too, that the state Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, they've been advancing a reauthorization bill that had no new consumer protections in it. So, And that was a bill sponsored by a Democrat. So I think we're really going to see a back and forth between consumers, utilities, and the, the Senate and the House over what this eventual bill looks like. But they do have some time. Are you hearing anything uh, specifically from the industry as uh, they push back on this? Yeah, it's it's mostly just that argument that, you know, people will take advantage of anything you give them. Uh, I think there's just a, a, a broad level of concern that, you know, say a summer moratorium would give another opportunity for people's bills to 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 expand to get to get uh you know to get higher with no attempt to repay them uh this was an argument they made over and over again was just that that argument of you know not uh not everyone is in good faith trying to pay their utility bill um i i should say that utility companies um like they've charged uh, according to some numbers from the puc they charge consumers about uh i believe it was 12 billion dollars in uh or yeah, $12 billion for, uh, you know, electricity and heat uh, in uh, the most recent year the PUC had data. And of that, there was about $170, $180 million that was um, deemed not recoverable, like money that, you know, the bills where they said we're, we're, we've given up on trying to collect this. Um, so, you know, it, it's only a small portion of the amount of money that utilities are charging people and getting back in, in terms of utility bills. But they're saying it, you know, it is, could be meaningful for rate increases in the future. Okay. And that initial argument that you brought up is, is just, um, I just would like to point out that you can say, Hey, you know, people will take advantage of whatever you give them. Uh, the same thing can be said of, uh, corporations and industries <laughs> as well as individual people. Yeah, and I think that's exactly the point consumer advocates were making. You know, uh, you know, for instance, one of the speakers, uh, 
who, who runs a, a utility, uh, like, a, like a law, a law group, a public interest law group that specifically hosts evil utility bills pointed out, you know, she, uh, you know, she, she got a, a frantic call right before Christmas last year from someone whose utility bill would be cut off. And, and, you know, and she was able to correct that. But, but, you know, a lot of times for people who are choosing between, you know, eating or keeping the lights on, that's a, that's a hard choice and not a choice that I think anybody wants to have to make. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's why advocates are in particular just excited to get a chance to try and rebalance the scales and see, you know, where could, uh, where could Pennsylvania offer some more protections and, you know, so, to make sure that somebody isn't drowning in a utility bill and, and maybe, you know, losing a really important uh, part of their, of their, you know, kind of home uh, in the process. Right. So uh, as the state House and Senate navigate uh, these negotiations, what do you see happening next? What are some potential outcomes? What should we watch for? I would say, you know, I, I'm just interested. It, it's very early on. I should say uh, the, the chairman, the Democratic chairman of the committee, state rep, Rob Matsey, he's from western Pennsylvania. You know, basically, he, he made no promises. He made no comment on where we are. He's like, we're going to have to sit down and have a conversation, and that's what I expect to happen. Um, I do think it's really interesting to note that the um, the Senate's bill to reauthorize this law, Act 14, uh, is or Chapter 14, um, is actually – sponsored by a Democrat, Senator Lisa Boscola from the Lehigh Valley. And I think I say that only because I think it's sort of this this whole debate to me is a real sign of what having Democrats control legislative chamber means. In the past, I'm sure a pretty clean reauthorization bill for this law that just had the current trade-off between the utilities and the consumer would have sailed through. Um, but now Democrats control a chamber. They are in charge of the committees. They, they set the agenda. They say yay or nay. And they're like, no, we should, we should have a bigger conversation here. This has to be reauthorized. There's a ticking clock. Nobody's opposed to reauthorizing the law. Everybody agrees it's a good idea. But, like, why not try and go further? And I think that is what the main goal is, is, you know, just watching how that debate plays out between the Senate, controlled by Republicans, and the House, controlled by Democrats. And then I should add, you know, our governor, uh, Josh Shapiro, who's a Democrat. Uh, I've gotten no sense of positions from anyone besides the House Democrats at this point. But, you know, it's an important topic. And as I said, it's a big money topic where, you know, we're talking billions of dollars in utility bills every year. And so everyone's going to want to, you know, have a piece of this conversation, I'm sure. Jason Dole speaking to Stephen Caruso, a reporter for Spotlight PA, who covered the story in Pennsylvania about the legislature reauthorizing a law that shields people from winter utility shutoffs before the end of the year. Spotlight PA is the independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit newsroom dedicated to high quality investigative and public service journalism about Pennsylvania state government and urgent statewide issues. We've partnered with them and you can find Stephen's report on our website, wjffradio.org. We'll take a break. And when we come back, our women in business series continues with Wayne County farmer, foster mom and outstanding woman in ag, Bonnie LaTourette. This is Radio Chatskill. Radio Catskill supporters include Sullivan Catskills Visitors Association. SullivanCatskills.com Catskill Brewery Brewing ales, lagers, and mixed fermentation beers in a LEED Gold certified building plus a food truck and beer garden at exit 96 off Route 17 in Livingston Manor CatskillBrewery.com And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org Hi, this is Marco Werman, host of The World Weekdays at 3, our newsroom connects you with events around the globe. Our reporters in the Americas, Africa, Europe, and Asia get to the heart of the day's news. We bring you international perspectives on issues worldwide and here in the U.S. It's one hour each day that broadens horizons and takes you beyond our borders. Join me on The World, afternoons at 3, on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Catskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Our Women in Business series continues highlighting local women entrepreneurs speaking about their lives and experiences and forging a successful path in their chosen career. Today, we speak to Bonnie LaTourette about Cabin Book Brook Farm in Wayne County, Pennsylvania, that she owns with her husband, Mark, where they are presently raising beef cattle. They've also fostered, well, they've also not only raised their four children of their own, two girls and two boys, but opened their home to 63 foster children between 2004 and 2019. And 
Bonnie was selected as the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau's 2023 Outstanding Woman in Ag. Here's her story. My husband and I both grew up on dairy farms, and um, so that's where our interests lie. And when we met each other, he had already bought a a farm, and um, I had had some cows. So the cows that I had came to his farm, and then we did buy a small herd and combined them all together. Growing up on a dairy farm, did you think that you would continue farming? Yes, I, I guess I did. I didn't have any other interests at that time, um, right out of high school. And then um, I did not go on to college. My my parents um, were not healthy at that time, so I needed to pre- pretty much stay home and, and work on the farm. Um, I'm sure if I wanted to go to college, we somehow would have made it, made it work. But at that point... Um, I needed to stay home and and help on the farm. Dairy farming that you started out with, for folks who don't understand what it entails, can you kind of walk through a typical day of what that is? And then, you know, you've now transitioned into into other farming, raising dairy heifers uh, and beef, Uh, but just farming in general on a typical day, what's that like for you? Well, it's an early rise in the morning. And of course the milk uh, cows need to be milked twice a day. Some people do three times a day. And, um, and, you know, in the winter months, there's, I mean, you have your regular chores to do, the milking, the barn cleaning, um, those kinds of things. But, and then the summertime, you know, you, you have to get up and milk, and then there's, you know, crops that need to be put in. If you're um, in the spring, if you're planting corn, um, you know, that has to be done. And then, uh, like I said, put crops in, hay. If you're going to do square bales, round bales throughout the summer, and then in the fall, you're going to need to chop that corn to, um, you know, put it in a silo or where, wherever the facility is on your farm, particular farm, where you want to put that for the winter. So you have the, the corn to feed your, your cows throughout the winter. So it's kind of a, you know, pretty busy day. And, and then, of course, you know, it depends on what time your milking schedule is and Depends on what time you get done to come in at night. Um, so that's pretty much a day on the dairy farm. How do you manage the balance between your farm work and your other daily activities? Well, when we we started, um, it was just my husband and I, and uh, both of us worked at the farm together. And uh, so... When it was time to come, like, into the house to prepare meals or, you know, run errands, you just, you, you know, had to find time during your day to do those things. And then we did have um, four children, two boys and two girls. And as they got old enough to help, they helped out on the farm. And um, I did work a part-time job off the farm um, probably a couple years into farming, um, it just didn't seem like there was enough money um, at that time to make ends meet with the, the cost of feed over what the price of milk was. And um, so I had just picked up a part-time job um, just to help make ends meet. So if the washer machine broke. We had money there to get a new washer machine. And, and let's see. Go ahead. Well, no, I was going to ask you also um – foster as well. Can you talk a little bit about your fostering that you do in the community? Well, um, we had seen a need for um, foster parents through where we were going to church at that time. Um, There were two families there that had foster children, and um, we thought we could help them. um, If we could um, respite their foster children for them, um, then they could go out on a date night or they could go get uh, groceries and not have to take all their children with them and just kind of give them a, a little bit of a break. So that was our particular reason to get into foster care was to be able to respite other children for the for the foster families that were already um, being foster parents. But um it didn't take long, and then we were 
had our first foster child back in, um, let's see, I'm trying to think what year that, 2004, we had got our first foster child. And, um, but again, still we were able to help respite other families and, you know, give them a, a break if they needed it as well. So you're farming, you're fostering, you're also a member of the Farm Bureau. You've been a member for over 40 years, serving on different uh, committees, the county board as well. There's a lot to juggle. What have you learned since uh, getting involved in all of this? What's the most significant change for you? Well, I do have to say, um, if, if I got to give God first in my day. Like if I can give him first in my day, then he gives me the hours that I need to do these particular jobs. Um, and I, I truly believe that um, we were led to um, help these uh, children and plant seeds in their lives so that they um, could have a better life. Not that we wanted them all to become farmers, um, but just to have a better lifestyle than um, what they were used to having. And so from your perspective, what's at the top of your list to advocate for, for your community? You, you mentioned so many different things, the farming aspect, the children's welfare aspect of it. We had changed over from a dairy farm to beef. It, it took a few years to um, transition um, from dairy to beef. But having um, those foster children on our farm, it gave them some responsibilities it gave them um, two, two of the girls that we had actually were in 4-H, and they raised um, pigs, livestock projects that they had took. And they had to learn to be able to keep records on how much it cost to feed the pigs. Um, they knew that this was a terminal project that, um, you know, when the fair was over, they, those pigs weren't coming back home. They were going to go in somebody's freezer. And um, then they saw the check that they had gotten from those pigs. And um, knew then that they needed to pay the feed bill. And then they had some money left over that they could purchase, you know, pigs for the next year. Uh But it also gave them some freedom here on the farm to, um, they would, um, I guess you'd say, take, take a cow as a pet. And they would name the cow and brush the cow and make a sign above the cow and give them and uh, hang a name tag up there for them. And um, they just kind of fell in love with the animals that that we had here. Um, They did have some jobs to do, um, help in the barn, and uh, nothing more than I wouldn't ask my own children to do and um, to help uh, keep the the business going. So, you know, we're hoping that we planted some seeds that, you know, that they learned some responsibilities. Um, You know, they also helped in the house. They had, you know, chores to do, um, help with the dishes, empty the dishwasher, um, which made things a lot easier for for me. And um, like I said, taught them some responsibility, too. One of the boys we had loved to bake. And um, that's what he entered at the fair one year is that he had baked some cupcakes and um, entered them there. Um, They all had their own little... um, niches would you say um and i liked when we got foster children and i didn't know a lot about them and i i asked the agency could you just let me figure them out i don't want them to come through my door already with a label on them and um i like to figure them out and um one time we had a group of five and with that many children um we did have to set up a a, kind of like a tour chart and a discipline chart and um what we did for um, rewards was not always monetary, but um, we would take them fishing. And I get to go one-on-one with them fishing, or we would go ice skating on, on the pond as well. Some of them just like to go out to the garage and um, work on a tractor with my husband or my son. And uh, that that was more rewarding than, um, you know, we bought them something, you know, monetary. Um, but just to be able to, to do things like that, um, for rewards for them. If you could share a piece of advice with, uh, the future generation of uh, folks in agriculture, the future men and women in agriculture, what would that be? 
Well, it is a tough, well, it depends on what commodity you're in also. Um, Dairying, being a dairy farmer is still um, challenging. Um, I can't, I I, got to say you cannot, um, um, you can, you can make it go. You can make it work. I actually have a daughter and son-in-law up in New York State that has a dairy farm. And, um, you know, they're making a go at it. They do have a couple, you know, side things going on where they sell some hay. Um, they have some Amish farmers that they work with up in New York State. And, uh, you know, they'll trade some milk for uh, chickens or, or eggs. Um, but it depends on which commodity you're in. Um and it seems like there's quite a few beef farmers now. So there's a challenge there. You know, you've got to find your own um, buyers, um, you know, for beef. If you're selling your beef out of the freezer or if you're selling it, um, if somebody wants to buy a whole or a half, um, sometimes you've got to think outside the box. Um, I have a niece that has a poultry business, and it's an on-the-road poultry business, and they uh, get contacted and, and uh, they go to the farm and they butcher, you know, a hundred birds in you know one afternoon for for you know farmers that um, have meat chickens. Um, but like I said, you got to think out of the box. Um, don't give up on your ideas. Um, you know, try to see them through. Um, there's there's help out there. You can go to your um, Penn State Extension. Um, to, to find help, there's grants out there for new farmers, new young farmers. Um, I, I just wouldn't wouldn't give up and um, um, can't think of anything else. <laughs> well, uh, the the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau's Women's Leadership Committee selected you as the recipient of the 2023 Outstanding Woman in Agriculture. Congratulations! Uh, I'm sure. Oh, thank you. I'm sure that makes you happy. But what's the one thing that makes you truly happy about what it is that you do? Well, it was very. I was so excited to receive the award because I just feel that there are other women out there that are just as deserving to get that award. Um, what makes me the happiest, um, at this point is that, um, I love what we're doing at this point, um, on the farm. We are very happy, um, here on our farm, um, raising the beef that we raise. We also board, um, animals for other farmers, um, which we're doing that right now through the winter months. And then in, um, I think it's May or June. April or May, right? Whenever the grass starts growing a little bit, then those animals will go back to their, their farms where they, they come from. Um, so I enjoy seeing those heifers grow. Um, I enjoy our seven grandchildren that we have now. <laughs> um, that's about the time when we got out of doing foster care because um, it was getting a little more difficult having foster children and taking care of my um, biological grandchildren. And um, so that's why we had um, just given given that up. And um, just so I can focus on the grandchildren more. And of course, the ones up in New York State, I try to get up to see them once a month. And um, we have three that are not too far from our house. Um, and they're, they're probably what make me the happiest. And uh, also being able to get out to, to church on, on Sundays and during the week that that blesses my heart as well. Well, Bonnie LaTourette, farmer over in Wayne County, doing so much. Thank you for talking to us today and telling us your story. And congratulations again on your Outstanding Woman in Agriculture Award from the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau. Oh, well, I'm very happy, very excited. And I'm so glad that I was able to tell my story. Because if you don't get out there and tell your story, then who will tell your story? So I'm glad that I've been able to share today. You're absolutely right. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And you can hear Bonnie's story on our website. We'll put that up a little bit later, as well as all the other women in business we've spoken to this week. It's WJFFradio.org. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno.
Farm Arts Collective Ensemble is a unique company of local artists, musicians, playwrights, farmers, scientists, makers, and activists. Trainings with Farm Arts Collective begins tomorrow, and it's open to performers, movers, shakers, and all curious folks who like making art and beautiful things with others. Valerie Manzi spoke to Jess Beveridge and Tannis Kowalchuk from Farm Arts. Farm Arts Collective is a collective of artists and farmers, um, people who live in the community, who are singers, dancers, but, you know, everyday people, people who want to be creative, people who've maybe had some experience in performance, um, but it's not actually even required. I mean, it's just really um, people who are interested in being creative together uh, with the intention of devising or building a new theater performance um, for our summer season. And um, that is um, this uh, interesting performance that we have, a series of performances called Dream on the Farm. And so we started in 2020, and we're going until 2030, mm-hmm. and we're focusing on this the subject of climate change. And Jeffs, yes. what is your role in all of this? Yeah, uh, my name is Jess Beveridge, and I am the company manager of Farm Arts Collective, and I am also an ensemble member. Um, and this year, for uh, this year's production of Dream on the Farm, I'm going to be uh, the stage manager, um, which I'm looking forward to as well. Um, yeah, but I've been working with Tannis for about seven years now. And just to go off of what she was speaking about, about bringing in new people into our ensemble, um, even if, you know, you have never been in performing arts before or, you know, you're just a creative person or you're thinking, oh, I want to meet new people or try something new. We're, we're always open for, for people that even have an inkling towards, you know, being creative in some way because you never know. You might come to one of our sessions and find something that, really interests you and that could uh, really change a lot in your life. So I encourage all of that. And what we normally do, Val, is we we open up our training. So the company, the ensemble, the collective of 20 plus people, um, that's who's in our collective. We meet every Thursday. We do this. Um, just It's just our training that we keep, keep going um, and they eventually will turn into actual rehearsals. Um, but we invite new people every January um, to um, come in, try it out, and get involved in the physical exercises. We do a lot of singing together, ensemble singing, a lot of um, creative exercises that engage imagination, that uh, maybe are some improvisational exercises. And it's like a, it's like this kind of messy, fun, wonderful <laughs> theater workshop that we do every Thursday in January, February to just like get our mm-hmm. muscles going, get us working together after a bit of a break and to get prepared for the rehearsal process where we are going to write a play together about climate change for the 2024 theater season at our farm, Willow Wisp Organic Farm. And the evening consists of a number of exercises. Yeah. I mean, if people have been to a theater workshop, you know, you meet, you stretch, you, I organize this check in where everyone checks in and then I'm going to lead the class or the workshop or the, 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 the study. And it'll be physical actions and movement. Nothing too crazy. We're not going to be going up on stilts. Mm-mm. We're just going to be doing physical fun games and exercises. Um, music, singing, learning songs. Um, some people will bring instruments because we have a lot of musicians in the company. They'll play music. Um, and it's, it's exploration, mm-hmm. you know, that I will lead. The following week, we actually have a guest teacher who's going to lead us. So we're also looking for people who would like to teach as well. People who might want to offer, make an offering, um, for our, our, the next month of classes, the next month of the, these trainings. And and who was the guest speaker, a uh, teacher? Uh, Morgan Kaufman, uh, who actually joined us last season for a Feldenkrais workshop, for a movement workshop. Um, and she's coming back uh, next Thursday to be a part of our teaching, which is really exciting. She's lovely. So this is really w- very wide ranging for anybody that wants to open their horizons a bit. There's a lot to explore. Oh, Yes. So much. And, you know, it's like it's it's making yourself vulnerable, but knowing that you'll be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it's not um, no one will be doing anything that's unsafe 
or even stressful as far as perform having to perform something. It'll be it'll be quite um, inclusive and um, in- encouraging and um, participatory, but um, you know, but still like challenging mm-hmm. of the, the 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 imagination and the body and the voice. We're yeah. really excited about the the show this year. The Dream on the Farm show this year is a play called we've we've already named it. It's called Conference for Those Still Living and it's it's about a conference that these characters come to um on a farm and um they are there to talk about how climate change has affected their their work and their lives and it's like a really interesting interdisciplinary cast of characters chef an artist may probably an actor a scientist <laughs> an ornithologist a biologist a person who's obsessed with weather like those i i, I don't even know because actually well, the people not. the people in the sh- in the ensemble yeah, are ensemble actually going to come up with a character sure. but those are some of the ideas mm-hmm. i have for for us but who knows what the people are going to come with oh and also i don't know if you remember yurika sase yes um she'll be coming to join so us excited. as well this this summer from japan so yes. that's going to be really exciting to have Yurika uh, join the cast because she's an old company member that's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what will her participation be? She'll be an actor. She's mm-hmm. she's joining the she's joining our devising and rehearsal process um, by Zoom. And so I'll be giving her a lot of assignments to create characters, to create um, some scenes, some do a lot of writing of text because a lot of us do a lot of writing um, for our own characters in this performance methodology create creation methodology so yeah so i'll just be giving her assignments and she'll come up with something and show up with her brilliant self and join the company when she comes this summer <laughs> well it all sounds very exciting and uh that there's a lot out there to experience and new frontiers mm-hmm. to be explored so i want to thank you both for coming in and sharing this. And before we have to end, is there anything else you would like to add? Yes, I think we need to tell folks in um, who are listening, if they are indeed interested in joining, that we're showing you show up at 530. You come um, prepared to move. So wearing clothes that aren't too restrictive. So the kind of clothes you would wear to a movement class or a yoga class or even going to the gym, you know, the gym clothes mm-hmm. is good. Um, we're probably going to be in, um, either barefoot or wearing, um, shoes like dance shoes or sneakers. So we're, we're, bring some indoor shoes, bring a notebook to write down what you've made and what we're working on to remember for the following week and a bottle of water to drink when, when thirsty. So those are the, those are some important uh, things to have with us when we work. And your website so folks can uh, know where you are and get directions if they haven't been there before. Oh, in fact, we have to tell everyone where, where it is, where it is yes. because <laughs> because we, you know, we have a very cold farm right now. So we're not okay. actually working at Willow Wisp Organic Farm at Farm Arts Collective. So we're working at the Western Hotel for these very trainings yeah, for in yes. Calico, New York. So that's Upper Main Street, the Western Hotel and Inn. And um, we're going to be upstairs you know, on the second floor ballroom. It's a nice big room Beautiful. to work in. It'll be a little bit chilly, um, but just wear layers. And, and we'll, we'll be moving. We'll be moving. Yeah, we'll yeah. be moving and getting so warm. So get heated up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so Western Western Ballroom, uh, 5.30 every Stays. Thursday for the next f- four or five weeks. Um, we'll be doing just open training, inviting anyone in our community who wants to join us. Thank you again for providing all of this for our community. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Can't wait to work with everyone. And more information about trainings at Farm Arts at their website, farmartscollective.org. That's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. Tomorrow in Radio Chatskill, our Women in Business series continues. We'll be speaking with Daniel Lascola, owner of the Calicoon Pantry. And of course, you can listen to all of our women in business interviews, as well as all of our locally produced programming right there at our website, wjffradio.org. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from JeffWorks Office Solutions, located right on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York a newly renovated pet-friendly office space that rents by the day, week, or month with hot desks, sound-insulated rooms, Wi-Fi, modern amenities, and 24-hour secure access. Online at jeffworksjville.com. And from The Cooperage Project, 
thecooperageproject.org, and listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. Law professor Nita Farahani says brain sensors may soon be able to read our innermost thoughts. We're quickly moving into a world where what you're feeling can be decoded using AI and neurotechnology. And that comes with huge risks. If we don't have safeguards in place, what it means to flourish as a human may suddenly not be our own. Brain Hacks. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Friday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Catskill, W233AH Monticello, WJFF Jeffersonville, and streaming online at WJFFradio.org. Today's weather, a little snow this morning with little or no accumulation. That winter weather advisory ends at 1, otherwise clouds and some fog. Low tonight, 32. Tomorrow, fog in the morning with a little rain, cloudy and milder, a high of 50. This is Radio Catskill, local news, culture, and NPR. It's 11 o'clock.